Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. This is the show where the answer is always TB. Uh, my name is Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by <laughs> by Barry Casson and Steph Boyer. How are you guys? Good, Danny. How are you, man? I'm pretty good. Barry? I assume that TB stands for too bad. So, yeah, <laughs> not, and I would say NTB, uh, not too bad. <laughs> That's great. Um, so we're really lucky today to be joined by Darren Carica Bailey, who I believe is an incoming chief at uh, St. Paul's Hospital. Is that right, Darren? Yeah, that's right. Fabulous. So maybe you can give a little a little intro to who you are, and uh, then we can hop into a case. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Darren. I'm one of the PGY2s in internal medicine, and I'll be chiefing at St. Paul's next year, which I'm looking forward to. So I think this will be a good a good practice case for me. A practice run for Barry as well, working with you. So that's that's really well. Nice. I I just want to say that Darren, this Darren's not going to be chief by accident, but by design. <laughs> I assume known was chief by accident, but maybe. Well, maybe, Danny, I Danny, we wrong. won't go there. Oh, yeah, yeah, we won't go there, Danny. <laughs> and I'm just uh, you know, picking names out of a hat, I guess, up until this year. And uh, and Darren's very polite. He didn't he didn't correct you. I'm going to cr- pronounce his name correctly. Carriage Bailey, I think, and he's from. A lovely family. I worked with Darren's sister several years ago. She's a lovely, lovely person. And, and I feel like I need to meet Darren and Edda's parents at some point. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent pronunciation. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry that I got it wrong. Okay, well. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, uh, so, so we're... So you have to be very careful with Italian pronunciations, and it's <laughs> it's something that you might have to learn, Danny. <laughs> I'll put that on the growing list of things I have to learn. Yeah. Okay. So we are uh, really excited about the case that you have for us today. Can I just uh, borrow a one minute of our time, Danny? So I'm not actually sure the sequence that all these shows will air in, but we had a recent episode where a case was presented to us and it was having a good approach to renal tubular acidosis was really kind of the the hinge point of this case. And anyone who listened to that episode will will have heard me skate very hard and get nowhere. I I really struggled in that case. It was like a a content gap for me, for sure. Just something that I, I both don't see enough and have probably never really understood deeply enough. And if I'm being honest, I left that recording feeling like an absolute fraud. You know, like I think even now, 10 or 11 years into my 12 years into my practice, I I still have a little bit of imposter syndrome. I still do have moments where I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a terrible doctor. And I left that recording feeling that way. And the only reason I, this is not a Stefan needs therapy session, but the only reason that I'm bringing it up here is because I wonder if, if our listeners and our trainees feel that way sometimes too. And, and I wanted just to talk for a minute about like what I do when I'm feeling that way. So I... I mean, what I did is I I did what I normally do. I went and read about renal tubular acidosis. But I think, you know, I, I also do need to accept that general internal medicine and in- internal medicine is so broad. There are going to be things that I just don't know. And, and this show is also a little bit artificial in that normally when I'm lost and when I'm in the weeds, I go to the literature. I go to the internet for support, for guidance. And we, listeners probably realize we do this with no support, no backup. We're just riffing off whatever's in our heads. And so I do take a little bit of solace (laughs) in that. You know, I, I was completely in a quagmire there. I was lost. I didn't know kind of what to do with that case. And 
I'm getting over it. I think in, in, you know, we have a close colleague, Dr. Onrod, who's famous for saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you're right, what matters is doing the right thing. And in real life, I trust that I would have done the right thing and looked up and, and done a lot more reading around that case. And so that's how I sort of get over that, that inadequacy. Um, and I would encourage people to, to do the same, like medical training is very hard and being a doctor is very hard and the expectations are very high. And, and that makes sense that they're so high. But the flip side is that we also need to be gentle with ourselves and understand that we're not going to be perfect. We don't know everything. And that's okay, as long as you continue to do the right thing. So that's all I have to say about that. But I just, yeah, I, I had some feelings that I, I wanted to air. Yeah. And, I, and maybe, think, maybe, yeah, if we're airing our feelings, maybe I can air my feelings because I've been doing this for a long time. And it just happens in that particular case that I'd had a case of renal tubular acidosis two weeks before. It was just serendipity. So I actually had a bit of a more of approach, but I had taken the same approach that Stefan is saying two weeks before and not on air and not in our podcast. I did exactly what Stefan was saying as I reviewed the topic because my knowledge was really at a had a big gap. And so it just, as I say, it, it was serendipity that that happened to be the case. But just to know that that's how, I think that's how we all practice. I mean, and uh, thank God for Dr. Google. Yeah. I, I would say like being very early uh, in my practice, I don't have imposter syndrome like you guys. I know I'm an imposter. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, well, I say take out the syndrome part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks, Steph, for sharing. I think that that's that's kind of a feeling that I kind of expect to not go away. Hopefully I bump into it a little less frequently as time goes on. But I feel like, yeah, I mean, in that case too, like I kind of felt like I got to sit to the side a little bit and watch two internists try and battle through it. And so I think I got lucky on that one, but I definitely like sweated out at the end of it. <laughs> I have a day where I saw a bunch of stuff I'm supposed to know the answer to. And I feel like I go home and mull and think it over. And uh, still try and hit the books as much as I can when I don't know the answer to something. Yeah, well, you know, I, I that, think so. the, the the take home, I guess, for me is like medicine is hard enough. We don't also have to then beat ourselves up when when we make a mistake or when we don't know something. Yeah, totally. Okay. Anyway, thank well, you for joining a uh, <laughs> therapy session, Darren. It doesn't normally start like <laughs> yeah. this. But, yeah, we'll yeah. see you all next week. For, okay. <laughs> so, um, maybe. With that, we'll hand it over to you for another case that I'm sure is going to make us all feel ashamed, uh, and I'm looking <laughs> looking forward to it. Okay, this, this is our good. this is our version of Fight Club, like where yeah. you just go and get just like beaten so badly, and then like it helps you feel alive. So we'll hand over to you now, and good luck to everyone. Okay, sounds good. So um, I'll tell you the story of Mr. C, and we'll start off with his with his background. So he's a 38 year old, previously healthy guy. No medications, only allergy is reported to aspirin. I don't have details about that. He's buried, works as a plumber, uh, otherwise does not smoke, but vapes marijuana and tobacco, no other drug use. Uh, during the pandemic, he was consuming alcohol at times in a binge-like pattern, but nothing in the last month or two leading up to the presentation I will tell you about now. So this guy shows up to the emergency department with a one-week history of low back pain, and a four-day history of lower abdominal pain. And this is a guy, like I said, who has no past medical history, does not come to the eMERGE unless he absolutely has to. And he says this pain was piercing and bad enough that it was waking him up at night. When we get a bit more detail about the pain itself, it doesn't radiate. It's not very well localized. There's no clear associations with position, 
with time of day, with food, and then specifically about the back pain. It's not accompanied by a loss of bowel or bladder control. There's no saddle anesthesia, no paresthesias or any red flags from a neurologic perspective. When we press him a bit about his back pain, he says that, yeah, you know, he's a plumber and maybe in the week leading up to this presentation, he was pushing himself a bit more at work. With respect to the abdominal pain, his bowel movements have been normal. There's been no blood in them, no mucus. He hasn't had any nausea or vomiting, but his appetite has dropped in the last, say, week or so with this pain. Occasionally has chills, but no fevers, no weight loss. And there was one night of night sweats, but otherwise no persistent drenching night sweats. Uh, When he's examined by the emergency physician, his vitals are stable, normal heart rate, normal blood pressure, normal temperature. His abdominal exam reveals a diffusely tender abdomen, but worst in the lower quadrants, right more so than left. Um, But he's not clearly peritonitic. When his back is examined, there are no, like I said, no red flags uh, for any underlying neurologic cause at this point. But he's tender along the paraspinal muscles, nothing along the spinous processes themselves. Uh, Some preliminary blood work is drawn. His CBC is normal, his electrolytes are normal, his creatinine is normal, he has a normal urinalysis, a normal lipase, and aside from an elevated ALP of 150, where the upper limit of normal is about 100, um, a CRP of 27, where the upper limit of normal is 3, and an LDH of 293, where the upper limit of normal is 230, the rest of his liver panel is normal. So at this point, to summarize, he has acute low back pain, acute lower abdominal pain, and like a pretty unremarkable, pretty unremarkable exam, aside from some pain in the lower quadrants and not super impressive labs. So at this point, the emergency doc gets a CT of the abdomen, the pelvis to rule out appendicitis, which I think is very reasonable in an otherwise healthy 38-year-old person. And it shows a twist, which I think makes the case exciting. So first of all, Normal appendix, normal stomach, duodenum, small bowel, large bowel, no free air, uh, no uh, free free fluid to suggest obstruction or perforation. But what it shows is pronounced retroperitoneal and paraaortic lymphadenopathy with adjacent inflammatory changes. There's also much milder lymphadenopathy along the iliac chains. There's mild to moderate retroperitoneal edema. There's no hepatosplenomegaly. The pancreas appears normal. There are no destructive bony lesions, and the great vessels they comment on are normal. So here is where I want to pause and get the group's thoughts on preliminary thoughts. I didn't give you much of a history or an exam. Is there anything more you'd look for and anything else you'd want to order? Kind of framing that around your differential. You want me to go first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, totally. so, yeah, so... I've, you know, I've learned, uh, I've said this many times, but I've learned so much from Barry and Jake Onrot over time. And one thing that I got from Dr. Onrot was to think about things in terms of pre-test and post-test probability. So when I heard that story, I think appendix was on my list. I, I think I also wrote down like diverticulitis, pancreatitis, pilo or some stone issue, gallbladder disease, something like that. And and I would bet if you saw a hundred patients like this in the emergency department, you know, the that list of five things would probably explain 90, 90 of them or or more. And so then on the CT, what we're getting is is a pretty surprise finding. Um, retro, lots of retroperitoneal and iliac adenopathy. And so in the real world, I would be looking up a differential diagnosis for that. But I still want to 
look up that differential diagnosis in light of the original thoughts that I had. It's not like I'm completely scrapping my original differential diagnosis. So I want to just have a good look at the CT uh, in terms of are there signs of diverticulitis or like are the kidneys okay? I I think you obviously with any kind of kidney infection, you can get some degree of retroperitoneal adenopathy, but this sounds like really dramatic. So now in addition to those things, I guess I'm adding other infectious things. I realize how vague I'm being there. And then, you know, that degree of adenopathy, I guess, brings about thoughts of of like a uh, maybe a hematologic malignancy, but it's very acute if it is like, and so if it if it is, I'm surprised that the LDH is only 293, you know, so those are those are my preliminary thoughts. I'm still thinking about the original things that I was when I heard the history. And now I'm introducing other infections like like this guy's going to get obviously a very extensive infectious workup. And I'm now contemplating the specter of malignancy that I had not when I initially heard the story. Do you guys think that like, because the only abnormalities that we had on labs included an elevated CRP, ALP, and LDH, is that a meaningful, like, is that some sort of trifecta that that strikes you guys and points you to a specific diagnosis? Or do those feel just like nonspecific noise that may make sense as we move through the case? Yeah, so um, just as uh, Steph was listening to the case, I was thinking to myself, you know, if I'm a 38-year-old plumber and I've got back pain, I probably would think that I, you know, I guess plumbers have awkward positions and I probably just attribute that to just I was bending over, I did this kind of work or that kind of thing and that's what started it. So it's, I I think my own, if I had it, that my own uh, assessment would be pretty nonspecific. And then I'm not sure. I think that so I would constant since the pain started in the back, that's kind of where I would go. And then this would be a, a surprise. I mean, I, I think that all of us would, at least my, I would think this is a surprise. So recognizing the surprise, I would want to know more about him personally and his environment and things he works at. And I, I'd actually want to know um, what these lymph nodes look like, because are they large? Are they necrotic? Are they this? You know, the, the character, the CT character of the lymph nodes would go a long way to inform me about how we're going to approach this. So I have no, I think the differential that Steph brought forward, and I guess with lymphadenopathy, inflammatory, neoplastic, or infectious, you know, are, are the things that uh, we consider. But to me, this is, I, I just don't have any guiding light to go to decide one way or the other. Uh, yeah. So, so you want more, you want more social history and dig into maybe like exposures at work and where was he born and, and some more of that. Yeah, And also, that, that and also the character, I mean, are these one centimeter nodes? Are these 15, you know, I mean, this, just to characterize that the radiologic pa- uh, pathology or the radiologic description of, uh, of these nodes. So we, so we have to hold in our heads at the same time, the pretest probability is high that anyone coming into the emergency department with low back and abdominal pain is the common causes of those things. And also kind of like walk and chew gum at the same time, think about the differential for retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, retroperitoneal edema. One thing that I found interesting that you said was that he has this paraspinal muscle tenderness, but he also has like spinous process tenderness, if I if I heard you correct, or he didn't have that. Did not have spinal process tenderness. Okay. Just, just the paraspinal, yeah. Ah, got it. Okay. Okay. So do you so, have any of that info for uh, for Barry? Yeah, for sure. So I'll give you a bit more history. 
first of all, from a social history perspective, there are a few interesting things. One is that uh, he traveled to Southeast Asia about a year prior. He didn't know of any TB contacts. He was doing largely touristy things at the time, he said. Uh, denied any like exotic animal or freshwater exposures. And then at 15 years old, apparently he spent three months uh, in, uh, in juvie or uh, incarcerated. I also don't have too much history about that, but just something notable on, on one of the thorough consults by an excellent junior resident. Uh, he was born in Canada. He is of Asian descent. But yeah, those things I thought were interesting from a social history. He's monogamous with his partner. There are no history of ex- uh, sexually transmitted infections. And then from a family history perspective, there's no family history of any autoimmune disease that he's aware of, no history of lymphoproliferative diseases or immunodeficiency. Uh, he did say several members of his family, when they, when they got older, developed cancer, but he didn't have really more details about that type of cancer. Uh, in terms of characterizing the nodes themselves, I don't have sizes. There was no comments of necrosis. What they did say, though, is like they were, they were big and they could maybe be sampled. Is, is the suggestion that was made. Would you would it be helpful if I told you what radiology was thinking at this point? It was very similar to what you guys were thinking. Sure. I think it's always helpful to hear, but I think I think uh, Steph and Danny have pretty much covered. I, I can't think, you know, they, they could be, they're in the same ballpark of where we probably have more information than data. Did they add anything to what we've already said? The only thing that they said uh, to add, I guess, was they said retroperitoneal fibrosis was thought to be unlikely given the absence of plaque-like or dominant soft tissue mass. That's the one other thing they added uh, but for, in their impression. For me, retroperitoneal fibrosis also doesn't come on over like three days. Right. And I guess for our listeners, if, if you heard retroperitoneal fibrosis, does anything else pop up on the differential for any of you guys? Sorry, that's, maybe I shouldn't explore <laughs> that, but maybe... maybe just, yeah. <laughs> This is the TV podcast. You want to take this, Danny? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've like we've bumped into a couple of these in the past, and like infectious causes, tuberculosis in particular, certain types of uh, malignancy can do it, and then like fibroinflammatory diseases in the family of IgG four is kind of some some items on the list. Any other favorites Sad. that you guys have on there? No, I mean I think heme malignancy is pretty common. Sounds good. Why don't I provide you with a, a bit more information on the next steps that the, the team pursued? So this patient was admitted to CTU, and one of the first things CTU did was, I think appropriately, they asked for a general surgery opinion about excisional node, because they said, like, there's a little bit of iliac lymphadenopathy, there's some retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, can we get tissue? They also uh, got a CT from the neck to the chest to kind of complete neck to pelvis, see if there's any other easily accessible sites. That did not show anything more. Because he's 38, uh, they also wondered about solid organ cancers, specifically testicular. So they got a scrotal ultrasound, AFP, and beta-HCG. Those came back negative. Uh, With respect to infection, up front, they got an IGRA and blood cultures, urine culture. The IGRA is pending at this point of the case. The blood cultures, urine culture did not come back with anything. They also screened him for hep B, C, HIV, and syphilis. All of those things came back negative. IgG4 was mentioned on the differential and a level was sent off and that's pending at this point. And finally, when we get back to general surgery, general surgery said, like, listen, like retroperitoneal nodes, not a great site for us to go. The iliacs, like it's a pretty deep node. Can you, can you try with IR first, like get a CT guided sample? And if that's non-diagnostic, then we can revisit this. But I think like these are not great nodes for us to go in. And I think that was reasonable. So they planned for a CT guided biopsy. That sample was obtained, and then the patient was really eager to go home. His pain was 
decently well controlled on um on like oral morphine and so he said like hey can i please go home and have like rapid follow-up as an outpatient and at that point he was doing pretty well so the team said yes and so he was discharged home so how many days has he been in hospital while this has been he's been assessed uh it took about it, it was a bit slow interesting it was a bit slow i think it maybe he came in like before a long weekend or something like that but it took about six days for him to get the ir guided biopsy and he was discharged home mm-hmm. and and his uh his improvement was because we were medicating him or his improvement was that he was just improving and we just happened to be looking to biopsy and he just happened to be there? I think it was the first one. Unfortunately, it was more so around medication that will uh, that will become quite apparent as, as I progress with the case. So it was more so that the morphine was helping hide his pain. Right. Mm. And and just to, to help us, I mean, in, in terms of amount that he's requiring over the course of a Assuming that he, well, we know he's a plumber, so he's doing, so how much morphine was he getting to control all this pain? So, I mean, he was opioid naive, but, and I don't know the exact amount, but what I could tell you is he ran out of the amount that it was prescribed to him and he had follow-up in like a week and then he came back to the eMERGE for more. So I'm assuming whatever it was, was enough for this opioid naive guy to have to bounce back to the eMERGE like two days later. Okay. So quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm really struck by the like the level of pain because I think a lot of the things that we have on our a lot of the things that we had on our original list for abdo pain back pain are very very painful but identifiable on a CT and all the things that we have on our list for like retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy that is not like necrotic lymphadenopathy or like with just tons of like you know terrible fat stranding and stuff I I don't think of as like the most painful conditions I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit surprising that it's so painful. Yeah, it was a bit interesting. And uh, the other thing I'll say is during that hospitalization, before he was discharged, uh, a rheumatology opinion was was asked for in the context of his CRP uh, being elevated. And they said, like, could this be IgG4-related disease? And at that point, the level was still pending. And Room said, you know, like, doesn't quite fit. Like, he doesn't have any head-neck symptoms. His pancreas looked normal on CT. Like, we don't think so. If you get tissue, like stain it for IgG4, sure. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, we think like ruling out infection, ruling out malignancy is probably higher yield than chasing IgG4. And there was a reason why I brought that up, but I can't quite remember what it was. <laughs> Sorry, and, and how easily, I mean, you had surgery, see him, or someone had surgery, see him. Yeah. How easily is are these nodes accessible to IR? So I, IR said they could get a retroperitoneal node. I wasn't there. I got involved later in the case, but um, they, they 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 said they were happy, and they, they got they said they got a decent sample when okay when it, when the procedure note was written. Okay, so uh, oh sorry, that's the reason why I brought up the uh, <laughs> the rheumatology pain. Rheumatology felt like the back pain was like musculoskeletal, like kind of like what you guys were saying, like isolated paraspinal, no other findings. They thought the abdo pain was probably unrelated to the back when they assessed him. That's the only thing I wanted to bring up with respect to the back pain. It's a bit of a Sorry, coincidence. Darren, just though, one right? further question. So yeah. did he have his IR before he left uh, the hospital and then he was awaiting the results or he was coming back for the for the IR? He had the IR before he, he had left? The, yeah, exactly. It was like he essentially waited for the sample. And then as soon as he got the sample, he was like discharged that day. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And then uh, unfortunately in the coming days, despite having like very closely arranged follow-up with GIM, he returned to the eMERGE like almost every other day, like either for more pain meds or because of pain. And so on the third time, the team said, like, listen, he needs to be, his GIM actually said, 
he needs to be admitted for expedited workup because like this is not going to work as an outpatient. And when he's readmitted, we have some results back. And I think this will make the case interesting. And we also have some new findings on exam, which I think raise more questions than give us answers. But anyways, it makes it fun. Okay, so we, we get the results of the lymph node biopsy back. And what it says, unfortunately, is limited tissue fragments with necrotic debris surrounded by a rim of fibrosis with few inflammatory cells. This is indeterminate for diagnosis. The immunohistochemistry, uh, immunohistochemistry is similarly non-contributory. They suggest repeat open biopsy if it is indicated with provision of sufficient fresh unfixed sample for lymphoma protocol. What I will say about this sample is it was also uh, not cultured for TB uh, and it was not stained for IgG4. We just have this result which looks like it was not sufficient. His IGRA comes back. It's negative for what it's worth. He did have an ACE level on his first uh, presentation and that was negative. Uh, and then his IgG4 uh, comes back and it is positive. Uh, it's 1.72. The upper limit of normal is 1.25. And so that is the new result we have. Now, clinically, what's changed is the following. So now when he's examined by the internal med team, he has new scrotal edema, new orthopnea, ascites, a new leukocytosis with a white count of uh, 13 and a half that's mainly neutrophilic. Platelets are up to six, uh, 465, a little bit elevated. His creatinines took a jump to 196. It was previously normal. His cholestatic enzymes are now more elevated. Previously, it was just the ALP at 150. Now his ALP is 207, his GGT is 419. There was no synthetic dysfunction at this point, though, and his AST and ALT were normal. His albumin was 33, so just a little bit low. And this time, from a vital, stands, uh, vital signs perspective, uh, his heart rate was 112, although the rest of his vitals were stable. So now he was tachycardic. I think... I'll, yeah, I'll give you this piece of information too. I know this is a lot of information at once, but I'll give you this too, and then we'll pause to have a bit of a discussion. So at this point, his abdominal CT is repeated because they wanted to see what's changed because clinically something's obviously changed. And now he has the following findings. So there's new bowel wall thickening of the sigmoid colon and rectum with associated pericolic fat stranding. There's no obstruction. Uh, the radiologist said this looks like infectious or inflammatory colitis but it could be the sequelae of an infiltrative lymphoproliferative disorder. I think they made that comment because in the indication for test, they mentioned like query lymphoproliferative disorder. That's why I think that was mentioned. Uh, there was new mesenteric lymphadenopathy with generalized increase in mesenteric fat stranding. Again, they said this could be acute infectious versus inflammatory, or it could be part of some sort of generalized lymphoproliferative disorder. The retroperitoneal and iliac lymphadenopathy was stable. And lastly, what we saw on exam was confirmed on the CT. There was anasarca with small bilateral pleural effusions, body wall edema, scrotal edema, and some ascites there. Okay, well, why don't we pause there? And actually, before we pause, let me just summarize what we have. Would that be helpful if I summarize all that for maybe the listeners? Sure. Okay, so we have new anasarca. We have a new acute kidney injury. We have worsening cholestatic liver enzymes. We have stable, extensive retroperitoneal iliac lymphadenopathy, but new mesenteric lymphadenopathy. And we've got this new sigmoid and rectal bowel wall thickening with stranding that suggests maybe underlying colitis. And his labs are now suggesting some element of inflammation. And his IgG4 is a little bit positive. 
Darren, that's just, to clarify, that mm-hmm. just to clarify, you saying anasarca, do you mean ascites or do you mean as anasarca? It's anasarca. Like he's got body wall edema, like scrotal edema, like there's fluid everywhere. So he has generalized anasarca. Yeah. Although what was interesting about his case, which like made a lot of us scratch our heads, was he had no peripheral edema. Uh, I still don't have a good explanation for that. But like he didn't have any swelling in his legs, but he had pleural effusions, like the, his abdomen would pit and he had fluid in his abdomen, but str- strangely nothing on his legs. That is strange. Oh, and scrotal edema. Yeah. Hmm. And, and, can you, and one item before we can kind of clarify, urinalysis and urine ACR. Yeah, great questions. So urine ACR was two, so not elevated. Uh, urinal- urinalysis was actually otherwise, it was bland. Yeah, it was bland. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> First thought from, uh, from you guys. <laughs> Okay, this is not going great, I would say, is my f- first thought. Like, whatever it is, it's it's evolving rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, there's lots of infections that evolve rapidly. Uh, hematologic malignancies can evolve rapidly. And and other, the grab bag of inflammatory conditions can evolve rapidly. So, th- so it, it, it helps understand like the a narrower differential diagnosis because some infections don't do like i don't think this is tuberculosis for example but by the same token i think it, it could still be in any one of those three ballparks and so on on that basic aspect i'm i'm still lost i i am surprised by the kidney injury um it's hard for me to make sense of that and so you know my, my hope would be that that is maybe a key log like we mm-hmm. We work up the kidney injury, and in understanding the nature of his kidney injury, we latch on to some new idea about his diagnosis. I think the, the same would be true of his ascites. We're going to tap that and send it for all manner of uh, of assessment, and maybe that'll give us some new idea. The fact that he has swelling kind of around the middle of his body and not in his extremities is is bizarre, and I don't know what to to make of that. Maybe he um, sleeps in like a deep hammock. <laughs> I'm trying to picture like how you would have your legs in the air. Yeah. I don't know. And I so also, I, I, I can't reconcile this new IgG4 elevation. Like for me, this is not, and not that I have a, an elaborated illness script for IgG4 disease, but this is not it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with Steph. I, I actually think with the rapidity of this process that's changing in days and really no other clues to the diagnosis, with the with the exception that I mean, you could anatomically think that there's an extension from his lymphadenopathy retroperitoneally, and now he's getting sacral edema, and he's got inflammatory changes in his peritoneum, and so I think that. But we're not any closer, at least I'm not any closer to a diagnosis when, than we were when we started when he when he first presented and he had these things. So my issue is not that I know. I think that we need rapidity and certainty in a diagnostic test that wouldn't have five different components in two weeks of interval while we're looking for this. So to me, this is uh, something that, and I'm not sure that I would even tapping his abdomen even do, I'm not sure that that would help. I think that he needs a surgical exploration. That's what I would say. For the yeah. for the retroperitoneal um, nodes? For the intra-abdominal process and the retroperitoneal nodes. And there's also now so, some, and, some bowel wall thickening that theoretically we could go after. And Darren, can you cl- can you clarify for me? Did he have any like clinical signs of heart failure? I'm trying to wrap my head around like what is the basis for his anasarca with an albumin? I think we got an albumin that was thirty still, yeah. So albumin's still okay. He's not peeing out all of his protein. How is he so anasarcic? Does he have 
any physical findings of heart failure? Yeah, that's a great question. So he does have orthopnea and those small pleural effusions. What I'll say is when the team was working this up, they got a BNP and it was 37. He later got an echo. He doesn't have an echo at this point, but I, I can, yeah, he, he didn't have an echo at this point, but his BNP was, was not high. It was low, if anything. And to complete the Anasarco workup, I'll give you guys some more information. I think you've raised some excellent points and the team was thinking about the same stuff that you guys were thinking about. So from an Anasarco's perspective, yeah, it, it didn't really fit with hepatic dysfunction didn't really fit with nephrotic syndrome, didn't fit with heart failure. And like his albumin was fine. So yes, like there were these like nonspecific, maybe colitis, like could he be losing protein that way? But you wouldn't expect his albumin to stay at 13. So no great answer for the anasarca. They didn't tap the belly. I'm not sure if maybe uh, it wasn't as accessible as, I'm not sure why. But they ended up tapping his uh, one of his uh, pleural effusions later. And that was sent for kind of a lot of stuff. But it came back exudative no malignant cells or bacteria seen. So again, no great answer for the anasarca at this point in the case. I agree with Dr. Voye's point. The AKI was odd for an otherwise healthy 38-year-old. So he did get a pretty thorough workup for the AKI. What came back were, was that there was no hydro. His potassium was fine. Bicarb was a little bit low initially, but uh, got better. His extended lights were fine. But interestingly, his uric acid was 720. And his, his LDH was now 320. This, this doesn't change, uh, you know, I think that these are, ta- these are tantalizing results that, that we're dancing around. I mean, tapping is plural effusion. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, a result that would, that would satisfy me and say, you know, this is the answer. So I, I, I would just reinforce my initial statement by saying, I think we're still prancing around and uh, we're not getting closer. There's always this phase, isn't there? Like we hear these cases and we're just like, we're, we're all shifting around in our chairs. Like when are they going to get tissue? When are they going to get tissue? When's there going to be some tissue? And until there's tissue, we're just, we're uncomfortable. You know, like I'm getting more interested in the possibility of a, of an aggressive hematologic malignancy. I do think the uric acid does help me in that way. Like if he's going to develop spontaneous tumor lysis, I don't know, like I'm pretty, you know, the uric acid and the AKI and all that. I, I'm, I'm a little bit interested. And so at the same time, that's not how we make a diagnosis of lymphoma, is it? We got to get a piece. Mm-hmm. So that would that would push me. Already, I would have been bothering someone to biopsy this guy, but now I'm more interested in that. Flow cytometry ever done on this fellow? Uh, flow cytometry was not able to be done in the first sample because it was insufficient. And I will give you, I think Dan wanted to say something, but I will, I will give you some more Okay. Tissue-related sure, stuff sure, sure. in about a minute after uh, after Dad says something that he was. I, I, I'm just wondering if uh, listeners kind of hear some of these cases and the the repeating patterns, like Steph pointed out, is that we always seem to like want tissue and we kind of sit on our hands diagnostically sometimes until we have that tissue. And I think that while that is true, a lot of the time the tissue that we end up getting is like not that helpful or doesn't tell us the answer up front. And then like a year later, it turns out it was TB or like whatever nonsense uh, sort of case we have. And so I, I think what we're trying usually to do is to not be too clever and kind of let ourselves drift down the diagnostic river a little bit like go where the case takes us and you try and use pretest post-test probability and often tissue is a really useful tool to you know steer us one way or another so it's not that we always need tissue to make diagnoses it's that 
it can sometimes wrap up some of these cases that are like all over the place. And if the tissue comes back not diagnostic, we are still going to push ahead with defining you know, the entity and we may reach a treatment threshold before we reach a, reach a diagnostic threshold. So it's not, I, I hope listeners aren't thinking like, useless, like all, like all that internists do is like wait for someone to come by and get tissue. I think that we are, we're, we're doing that when it's necessary, but also trying to be like cognizant of uh, the invasiveness of those tests. But, but I think the other part to this is that it's dangerous to take pieces of information that might match what we think could possibly happen and make a conclusion about what what we're finding. So for example, <laughs> I didn't follow so that. <laughs> here's here's this man who's traveled to Southeast Asia and he's uh, Asian background and so he raises the possibility of some form of infection that he might have had. But again, does that answer our question of the rapidity? So does that does that describe in context or in an illness script, a disease that we've recognized? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So there isn't, there's not a, I think when, when there's a story and that there's suggestions of a story, I think it's worthwhile following that story to try and sort it out. But the story here is that I hear is that here's a guy who's a plumber who's working away. And within two weeks of beginning his symptoms, he has increasing symptoms with Swelling in his scrotum, swelling in his ab- ascites, pleural effusion, increasing pain. I can't think of anything that, I can't think of a test that would say, aha, this is what you've got. And so back to my original point is with the rapidity of this, and there are suggestions, I think tumor lysis and this, with the rapidity of this, I think we need to be as rapid as the, as the disease process. Mm-hmm. All right, I like Aaron. that. And I think, I think. No, that's great. And I think that's uh, that's what the team was thinking as well. They said, so, and pretty much as soon as this guy gets readmitted, the internal medicine team calls GenSurge again and says like, listen, now he's got swelling everywhere. Now he's tachycardic. Um, we're worried about him. Like the, the first sample was was non-diagnostic. What do you think now? And then their answer at this point was kind of unsatisfactory. Like it was it was similar to the first time where where they said, again, like there hasn't been any progression thus far in the like inguinal or in the retroperitoneal nodes are still difficult to access. Um, they said, can you try one more time with IR? And so that's eventually what happened. And so IR, uh, this time goes for an inguinal node. And this time they make the comment that this was a difficult procedure. It seemed like based on the report, they didn't feel very strongly about the samples they got. And then the other thing that Gensert suggested was you guys should get GI involved and see if the colitis can be kind of an answer to this case. Maybe maybe that's tissue that'll that'll push us in one direction or the other. And so GI did do a colonoscopy. They found some uh, edema. They found like uh, essentially edematous colonic mucosa from the rectum to 30 centimeters from the anal verge. So like a, a chunk of edematous colon, but no masses or anything. They took multiple biopsies, which at this point in the case are pending. So those are two avenues to get tissue. And then at this point, hematology was also involved. And uh, this is kind of where I got involved in the case as well. I was on hema at the time. And hematology said, yeah, this this presentation is very atypical. This is very strange. This does not fit any of our illness scripts for anything that we can recognize right away. But they said, you know, we are concerned about something aggressive and something lymphoproliferative. And one thing that they actually mentioned in the differential was multicentric Castleman's disease, uh, which is not something that I, I knew much about prior to 
reading about this case. And to be honest, it's still, <laughs> still a bit of a black box, but uh, maybe I could take one minute to summarize what I've learned about multi-centric Castleman's and we can move on with the case. Is that, yeah. that be okay for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it essentially, ref- it's like an umbrella term. It refers to a heterogeneous group of lymphoproliferative disorders with inflammatory symptoms. And those inflammatory symptoms often manifest as generalized lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, various cytopenias, organ dysfunction, and the underlying mechanism is thought to be, you almost have this like excessive cytokine-like state. Um, and one of those cytokines is IL-6. I mean, it's kind of involved in many, it's a co- involved in many inflammatory pathways. But the reason why that's relevant is because hematology said like, you know, while we're waiting for tissue, we agree. I think, honestly, we need to get tissue as quick as possible in this guy. But while we're waiting, let's send off some fun blood work. So <laughs> we sent off an IL-6 level, we sent off an HHV-8, because half of the cases of uh, multicentric Castleman's are associated with HHV-8. Those are often in immunocompromised patients. And the other half are considered idiopathic cases in immunocompetent uh, patients who are HHV negative. So I guess in this case, the suspicion for HHV-8 was probably pretty low, given that he was seemingly immunocompetent. And the last thing that was sent was a VEGF level, which can also be elevated in multicentric Castleman's. But in summary, multicentric Castleman's is part of the family of lymphoproliferative disorders. So it kind of all fits within the same lining. I think the reason why it was brought up is because you can get like a waxing, waning anasarca associated with it, which is, again, not really what this guy had. But Sorry, and they usually have a thrombocytopenia with the ascites in, the, in, in, in Castleman's, right? So he doesn't have thrombocytopenia, is that correct? Correct. He didn't have thrombocytopenia, and he also didn't have hepatosplenomegaly. So I think it was low, low pretest probability but it was it was mentioned and considered, and while waiting for tissue, some some testing was sent. No, but no, I agree but, with you. But I no, no, and I'm not trying to be uh, obstructive or argumentative. I mean, I think that all of these. I think Danny in his initial assessment said this could be autoinflammatory or some form of, and Castleman sort of falls into the bridge between the lymphoproliferative disorders and the inflammatory disorders, and so there's a whole host of these diseases, you could, and someone could mention that a disease and be correct. But I don't think it's with the information we have. I don't, let's say he's, he comes back and he has HH, sorry, uh, V8 uh, positivity. Does that mean he's got Castleman's? I don't think so. So I, I still think that in the end, we're still dancing around trying to get a diagnosis. Exactly. And so to get the elusive, so that they get the elusive tissue that Dr. Cassin wants, and one day later, unfortunately, the pathologist calls the hematologist and says, hey, this was, this was sent in formalin, which is unfortunate because you can't do flow cytometry unless it's on a fresh sample. And so this poor, this poor patient then needs to have another sample done. And at this point, I think this was just the miscommunication. It was just put in the wrong container. And so at this point, I guess at this point, let's, what, what would you guys do now? He's had two samples he's getting sicker. Like we've done nothing for him. Like who would you talk to? What would you do? Cause I think part of the, uh, part of the podcast or what aspect of the podcast that I really appreciate is how you guys go about practically running like a CTU team or practically approaching these tough cases. So as the attending, what would, what would you guys do now? Get another sample. <laughs> yeah. I think there's no substitute for like, like essentially, unfortunately the test has not been done and, and it's the, the test that, you know, <laughs> Barry and Steph have wanted pretty much from the beginning and the CTU team wanted from the beginning. No one wanted to do an IR guided anything. And 
I think that these can be really tough conversations about the order of operations of getting things done. But there's just no substitute for for getting some of that tissue with architecture um, when you're thinking about different types of lymphomas or Castleman's or you know weird some of like the weird other stuff we, we've we've talked about before. We can't avoid that. So that's that's really crappy. And I call surgery back to do it again. So yeah, what I, mean, I would do next is I I think the first thing I do is apologize to the patient. Yeah, same. absolutely, uh, absolutely. Because I think that it, this is on us. I, the second thing I do is I talk to surgery because w- what I'm hearing is that they don't want to do this. Uh, they didn't want to do it the first time, and they didn't want to do it the second time. So I try to understand. I think what is it that they're the problem? Are they feeling that because they're not necessary, or is it technically too hard? Or what is, what's the issue with the surgical approach that they're having trouble with? Because they're obviously having trouble. They're not doing it. Those are the two things because I haven't changed my view. We all have, we all have the same view. We need a diagnosis. But I, I just don't understand w- what the reluctance is. You know, your, so your question, Darren, like practically what would I do? So I think uh, apologizing to the patient is true. And I think specifically that apology would sound something like Mr. C., you know, we we're struggling here to with your diagnostic workup, a sample was sent. Unfortunately, it was not not diagnostic, it was not kind of sent appropriately. And, and we need to repeat the sample. Um, like I am that kind of blunt with and honest with my patients. And that is what I would say. And then, you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this probably work at a teaching hospital where there's like, you know, 18 layers between my medical student and the general surgery staff. And so um, this is like, I go down to the general surgery clinic and speak with the general surgeon and and explain them the situation and go from there. This isn't like I'm sending my med student off to talk to the general surgery medical student and eight days later we have some answer. This is like a staff to staff chat. Perfect. And that's uh, that's essentially what happened. So what happened at this point was, uh, yeah, the team apologized to the patient. The patient was very understanding and acknowledged that yes, this is what we need to do to get an answer to your case. And so a discussion was had between IR, between surgery, between CTU and hematology. And again, this was going into a weekend. So GenSurg, and and to answer your question, Dr. Kasson, initially the reluctance from GenSurg was the fact that the retroperitoneal nodes are, are difficult to excise safely. And then the iliac nodes were like they were they were very deep and i guess the thought was that it, again it would be a challenging open procedure what i will say so at this point again general surgery said like okay we, we understand there's been a few samples they haven't they have not been diagnostic we the issue is again like it's it's challenging for the surgical services because like they said we'll, we'll put this patient on as an e4 which is like their least urgent em- emergency slates I'm sorry for my ignorance. I don't do surgery, but um, anyways, he was on. He was like on the emergency slate, but as like a lower priority. And so they said, "We're going into a long weekend. Uh, we're going into not a long weekend. We're going to a standard weekend. We'll put him on the slate." And at this point, IR, um, who the, the IR staff felt, even though it wasn't that person's mistake, it, it, I think there was just a miscommunication somewhere along the line. But the IR staff felt very bad and said, "Like I will do this again today." He said, "Like I think when I." When we were doing the imaging prior to the other procedure, I think the left side is also amenable to, to biopsy. So let me do a CT guided core on that side, just waiting in case we can get an answer by Monday and like save this guy from the excisional. But for now, like all the teams agreed, we'll keep him on the slate for the excisional. 
we'll get a core. Um, and then come like next Monday, we'll see if GenSearch is able to do this case. Does that, does that make sense? Essentially, and then the patient agreed to this because they wanted an answer as quick as possible. I, I wonder if I wonder if Barry and Steph would agree to that. Like, would you be okay with another, you know, riskier than normal, but but another needle procedure? Or would you say, no, thanks. Like, like sure. what we need is the, uh, the excisional. Sure. Every biopsy. More biopsies. Every, every, every <laughs> as many kicks at this can as possible. <laughs> You're right. As many uh, angles on this as possible. Right? Yeah. Okay. Barry, you too? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now we move through the weekend. We have the sample. This time the sample, actually, yeah, the hematology fellow went down to IR and made sure that the sample was sent in fresh uh, in the right medium. And so, yeah, the correct sample was sent. This time it was stained for AFB, uh, lymphoma protocol. Everything was done. This was a good core sample. The radiologist was happy. Over the weekend, come Monday, uh, the patient is rounded on and now he's on a couple of liters of oxygen. He's become febrile. His white count's gone up. The CTU staff thinks he's developed a hospital-acquired pneumonia, which he had. So he got started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. And the CTU staff calls GenSearch and says, like, you have to take out this node. Like, if we don't get an answer from, like, if we don't get an answer from this core, like, this guy's now has hospital-acquired pneumonia, like, like take out his, like, take out his node. And I think that's what the patient needed because that day the, the, the node came out, excisional node. He got an excisional node. And... Oh, no. You know what? And do we know what the core is before we take him to surgery? So this is... Oh, bad. Okay, so that day, after he oh, returns shit. from surgery, the core comes back. And any guesses? He's got a lymphoma. I think I would have uh, gone with lymphoma. If this is TB, I'm taking a break from the show. <laughs> <laughs> the show cannot. I was joking when I said this is like the TB podcast. I, I, I think given that story, uh, I probably would have put my money on a lymphoproliferative disorder as well. Me too. Or a hemalignancy. I think that's Me what too. I would have thought. Okay, so it comes back as anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is uh, a rare form of peripheral T cell lymphoma. Yeah, and it's uh, I can I'll talk more about that in a second. But what a like what a what a like windy road for this poor patient, eh? It's like kind of crazy. Anyways, wow, crazy Sorry, but the, not, the not core, that unusual. Probably the core biopsy shows this. Yeah, the core biopsy showed that and eventually the excisional biopsy you also. I'm just going to digress for a minute because these are clinical reasoning rounds, but they're also uh, practical rounds. And here we are practicing medicine four and a half days a week. Mm. Um, We don't practice Friday afternoon. Monday morning's kind of a loss. And certainly Saturday and Sunday, we're just uh, filling in. Maybe so that's four days a week. So, you know, if this man had had had, had the tissue been looked at Saturday morning, you'd have had the answer Saturday. It just happens that it was Friday that this was done, and now we're waiting three days, not for any reason, except it's the weekend. Sorry, I'm going to rant, so I'll, I, I'll I'm shut gonna, up for a second. I, I, I have you. such strong feelings on this topic, and I I could go on for an hour, so I am going to say nothing. <laughs> this is... Ugh. Anyway, I'm going to shut my mouth. I totally agree. I think the idea of the weekend, it doesn't apply to when you're feeling sick like the patients don't feel better on the weekend because like oh good like don't have to go to work today they're all very sick all Mm. day and all night and so i think the idea of like things waiting till monday things waiting till oh it's a a long weekend we'll do it on tuesday i think that's trash (laughs) 
think that's real garbage. And I, th- and I, I wouldn't would want say that, that for my own family member. I wouldn't want that for myself. So I, I don't know how we can ask patients to accept that. But And that's what I'm saying. I think that anybody that's ever had a family member that's been in this situation would recognize the understand that would would recognize this immediately, and and in question what the heck is happening. So sorry, that's the rant, and I'm finished it's, ranting. It's it's amazing how patients do accept it. Patients accept that that the hospital slows down or basically shuts down over the weekend. It is obscene. Go ahead, Darren. Darren, sorry, we we've. <laughs> no, I, I think that's. I think that's very appropriate and and topical with what happened with this guy. So I will tell you a bit about what happened with him. So he did have a a bit of a bumpy recovery, unfortunately. He, for his volume overloaded, uh, actually required a bit of uh, ultra filtration, like a a few runs of hemodialysis uh, to get the fluid off. Uh, He recovered from the hospital-acquired pneumonia, which turned out to be Cleb pneumo. He was started on CHOP and developed febrile neutropenia that required treatment, but months later, his most recent PET showed no evidence of active lymphoma and complete response of the initial retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy seen on the initial CT, uh, which is good. And when I called him, he seemed to be doing well. So while it was a very challenging case for the various parties involved, he's doing a lot better now, which is good. That's really um, good to hear. Yeah. I, yeah, that, that's certainly not a diagnosis that I like have any content expertise in. I and and you'll tell us a little bit about it but like now now like if i think back to the very beginning of the case as as like you you want to do as a resident does that fit like is that part of your um illness script for a lymphoma like the acute low back pain abdominal pain and i, I i'm getting a nod from Steph that that he's perhaps seen uh, cases like that i think when we started the case i was thinking of infection and then kind of as things, like in terms of ordering the differential, like infection, malignancy, all the weird stuff below, below that. Um, and then it kind of rapidly started to change as we started to get a little bit more of those labs and the second admission to hospital. Do you guys feel like that fits your illness script for uh, hematologic malignancy, the, the back pain, abdominal pain, the acuity? No. So I would say that our differential diagnosis at the, at the outset I guess what what the, how I would look at it is that the only thing that made a difference is the difference it is the pathology. If the pathology had said this is TB, we would have said pretty rapid case of TB. If it had been <laughs> a fungal yeah. infection, if it had been Castleman's, which it could have been, if it had been any one of these things, we would have said, "Aha!" So it doesn't really help me. So if I heard this story again which is really an illness script, if I heard the story again or I saw this presentation again, I don't think it'd be any smarter in terms of what the diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. I think our our approach would be the same approach that I would take at the at the beginning. The only thing is, we and we've reemphasized it over and over again, is that maybe being a little more aggressive in terms of trying to find the diagnosis, but I don't think this sets me up to, aha, this sounds like this. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a little surprised by the initial sort of paucity of B symptoms by the LDH not being all that high. But I think you know it's it's not it's not that the presentation was not characteristic of lymphoma. It's that it was characteristic of characteristic of lots of things. Yeah, and so yeah. so that's that's kind of where we get tripped up. But I think you know where we where we, I'm going to pat us on the back for a second, where we do, <laughs> we, we do well in cases like this, because we get that you can't be sidetracked by every little thing that comes up. So, so someone's got, 
you know, an IgG4 that's a little bit elevated or an indeterminate biopsy, whatever, we just plug on with, we can't, we're not going to get satisfaction until we have a, a good biopsy. And so I, I think mm-hmm. we do well in that of, of doggedly chasing down the biopsy. I think we should probably just for listeners, maybe just quickly address like the IgG4 being elevated is not specific enough to diagnose IgG4 related disease. And in this context, it did not fit the illness script of IgG4 disease. And that's why we didn't even we didn't address it. But I think we were probably all thinking that but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, everything can be a little bit out of whack within, you know, some some boundaries. Um, We're just going to skip over that. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Steph. So, Darren, what uh, what do you have to tell us about th- that diagnosis? That's not something I have much content knowledge around. Yeah, um, neither did I. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is. Uh, it accounts for two percent of all non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so it's quite rare. Uh, it's a form of T cell lymphoma, and it can really be broken down into four different categories. So, the first branch point is it can be primary or secondary. I guess uh, the only like rec- like the sec- secondary cause that is somewhat more common is actually breast implant associated, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it in itself is rare, so it's not an indication for screening if somebody has a breast implant. But usually, what this will present as is like a non-healing unilateral seroma around the implant, and usually it has an excellent prognosis, doesn't spread anywhere, um, and so. Often if there's like a non-healing seroma, that's how it's recognized when that set, the fluid is sampled. So it's kind of like a not super concerning form of this process. Mm-hmm. So that's the secondary stuff. From a primary perspective, it can be broken down into systemic or cutaneous. Again, the cutaneous form uh, often presents in, the, in patient 60s. It's indolent. And often the management is just you excise whatever nodular area is involved. So again, not typically a very scary invasive process uh, it's the systemic form that um, is can be the aggressive form so the systemic form is often broken down based on alk positivity alk and the reason why that's relevant is because patients who are alk positive have better response to chemotherapy and better prognosis which was the case in this gentleman and the classic presentation of systemic anaplastic large cell lymphoma is often painless actually lymphadenopathy um, and constitutional symptoms. So even this case didn't really fit the classic illness trip that I was reading on up to date. And like I said, this diagnosis was pretty surprising to the hematology team. And it's not a diagnosis that they deal with very often either. But luckily, it responds well to chemotherapy if caught at an appropriate time. So wow. maybe without the content knowledge, I mean, if we go back to his progression of symptoms and his findings when he starts with back pain and abdominal pain and then goes on to have scrotal edema and ascites and pleural effusions. How do we reconcile that? What what was the process there? Does he have infiltration? Does he have lymphatic obstruction? How how does he what how, how does he arrive at those symptoms? So my thought process around this was sim- similar to what you just said. One would be he was hyperinflammatory, so whether there was some evidence, like some degree of capillary leak, that's a possible mechanism in the context of aggressive lymphoma. And then number two is in the face of this extensive lymphadenopathy, could there be an element of lymphatic obstruction? Again, it's it's the the sparing like the sparing of the legs is something that I was never able to explain. But 
working through the Anasarca in my mind, the lymphatic obstruction and the hyperinflammatory state were the conclusions that I reached after ruling out the heart, lung, and kidney stuff. Or sorry, not lung, uh, liver. Wow. Well, Darren, thank you so much. That was a that was a roller coaster. That's a tough case. Glad you guys got to the the end of it, and I'm super glad it wasn't TB again <laughs> because <laughs> because we cannot hear another TB case. Um, okay. Well, thanks everyone for um, listening in, and we will be back in a few weeks with our next episode. Take care. Thanks, Bye, everyone.